Hi, I'm Rifka, health coach and your guide to a more balanced and healthy lifestyle. And I'm Ida, mental health awareness advocate and ADD coach. Welcome to the From the Inside Out podcast. We are entrepreneurs and friends who love connecting through meaningful conversations. It all started in an Uber, where we were both inspired by each other's life experiences. We decided then and there to create this platform because we believe in the power of connection and growth through sharing our experiences. Here we share research-backed tools, tips, and shortcuts. And interviews with some of our world's greatest thinkers, leaders, and everyday heroes who inspire us to create positive change in mind, body, and soul. From the inside out. Welcome back. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening and for all your support. We're so grateful to you for helping grow our community and for allowing us to continue in our mission. Our community continues to grow and we continue to see more subscribers every day. To all of our new subscribers, welcome to our platform. It's so great to have you here. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. And we hope to continue bringing you inspiring, thought-provoking, and unique insights. Our guest today is a hero among us. Meet Matis Yahu Devlin, a former altar boy raised in a devout Catholic home who became a Hasidic rabbi, educator, and mentor. In this episode, he shares his incredible story of struggle, triumph, and near-death experience, and how he found his way home. Okay, okay, so welcome, Rabbi Devlin. Thank you for taking the time to be here. We were thrilled to have you. Your story is so inspirational, and I felt like this is something that we have to bring to our listeners, who I think would really appreciate your journey and how you got to where you are today. So I'm wondering if you can introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us your story. Of how you went from an altar boy to a Hasidic rabbi. Yes. Sure. So I appreciate the kind words and the introduction. I grew up in a, a religious Catholic family. I am one of 11. Myself and my 10 siblings, we all went to church. We were baptized. We celebrated all the Catholic, all the Christian holidays. We went to Catholic school, confession, everything. I felt that we were a very cultured family. My siblings and I were all involved in music, in dance, in the arts. You know, we're an academic family. My father is a doctor. So he's someone who always really pushed for us, aside from his religion, as as a religious Catholic, as a devout Catholic. You know, academics, academia, arts, culture was also something very important to him. And that was a really a big part of our upbringing. When I was a child, I really went along with, with this uh, wonderful life. But at a certain point, I started kind of deviating uh, from the chosen path. And I began to get into trouble. I began questioning certain beliefs I was brought up with. And with that came kind of a general rejection of the entire religion and of morality, Catholicism being a very moral-based system. I began to really reject all morality that I was raised with. I began to reject authority. I re- really began rebelling against my uh, my parents. I was ruining relationships with my siblings, which of course is something very, very important, especially my family, we're a very close family. And my life just wasn't really going in, in, in a great place, really from a young age, really starting in, um, you know, early on in middle school. You know, my father was a doctor, my mother's a nurse. We volunteered for everything in church. And we were like a respectable family. On one hand, being an altar boy on Sunday mornings and you know, Saturday mornings, I would wake up to practice with the youth professional symphony in my in my hometown. I'm a percussionist primarily. On the other yes. hand, yes. You have one with you today? <laughs> I tucked away all my limited living space at the moment. So all my instruments are put away. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, I was a rebel. I was a skater. I was a pothead. I was living in these two kind of opposite spectrums of uh, social life and, and, you know, life as a teenager, which really was, uh, you know, it was difficult to try to straddle both of these things. You know, it got to a point where I was in detention every day. I had been suspended a few times. I was pretty shocked that I hadn't been expelled at this point. My mother would joke at at, uh, one point later, she joked to me, she was never concerned about me if I didn't come home from school because I was probably sitting safely in detention. Now, (laughs) that was probably more more ignorance is bliss. I was not always in detention if I didn't come home right after school, but you know, often enough I was. And I was just having a really hard time throughout high school. Being a pothead went from just, you know, a fun, exciting, habitual thing to more of a dependency. Religion had been such an important thing in my upbringing and I was really struggling with it. I was looking into other branches of Christianity. I would go to church twice on Sundays. Because my father, you know, said I have to go to Catholic church, but then I wanted to like see what other churches were like. So like he wouldn't let me just go to the other one. I had to do both. And I began to explore other religions, other cultures, other things to try to understand. Like, you know, I felt faith was something important because I grew up with it. 
And you knew um, your mother was Jewish, right? So you knew all your mother the time, was- I, I knew my mother was Jewish. It didn't really play a part in our lives. We, we celebrated Hanukkah every year. That was like the one Jewish thing we had, but it was always mom's thing. Like she's Jewish. This is her one holiday she celebrates. So we're like celebrating with her. And okay, it is exciting. All of our Jewish relatives send us checks and savings bonds. (laughs) Um, So, you know, it was a nice thing and it was something different. Pretty much none of our friends, you know, had that. And lighting the candles and singing this Hebrew song. And it was definitely nice. It It was a nice, unique thing that we had. But I never really felt that it was like that was us. It was like, we're Catholic even as we were teenagers and and maybe a lot of my siblings and I didn't buy in so much into Catholicism as a religion, but we still felt very culturally Catholic and definitely never considered myself to be a Jew. So Uh, your mom kind of took on the Catholic religion along with your father and your family? So so now I don't want to be mistaken. She didn't take on Catholicism. She just didn't, she just wasn't really involved in religion. When my parents uh, got married for a Catholic to marry a non-Catholic, they, the, in order for the church to allow the, the wedding, the non-Catholic spouse agrees that the children will be raised in Catholicism. So my mother at the time felt that my father is the more religious of the two of them. And it seemed like you know, it would be a nice thing for her kids to be raised in a, in a good moral system. And yeah, you know, no big deal. So she thought, that's just kind of how we grew up. Mom's Jewish. She's not really involved in, in Judaism. And uh, we're Catholic. And she would celebrate holidays with us, not like as the Catholic, but just like, you know, we're opening up presents on Christmas. Of course, like she's sitting with us. She bought us half the presents anyways, you know. Right. So it's like, right. you know, <laughs> by default, you know. And, and she would come if we had sometimes on the bigger religious holidays, we would have before church services started, they would have like little concerts, little pageants for the kids. So she would come to church then to see us perform, but she never came to church as like a religious thing to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. I never really thought I was a Jew. No one ever really said to me, hey, you're Jewish because your mom's a Jew or you're half Jewish. Maybe like once in a while, someone might say something like that. But I would be like, I'm not Jewish. That's a religion. You can't, you're not born into a religion, right? We were baptized, so we're Catholic. So I'm just trying to get through high school. I get to senior year. And my life had really been falling apart at that point. I had been really depressed all throughout high school. My best friend when I was 15 was hit by a car and was killed. Um, and that was really hard for me. That was someone I was very close with. And that was at a point when I was like starting to really struggle with my faith. I was starting to really struggle with substance abuse and getting depressed like that just really put me over the edge. And for those couple of years, I was really in a really, really bad place. But senior year came, I have to straighten up. Let me get through senior year. I got good SAT scores, pretty good, you know, grades in school. I'll get into whatever college far away from home and I'll be in a new place, you know, new faces and I'll have a fresh start. And it didn't really work out so well. Senior year, November 26th of 2008, my mother's birthday. She gets a phone call first from the school that I was expelled. Then she gets a phone call from the local precinct that I am uh, sitting safely in custody, that she should come pick me up. And without getting into the details of what occurred, but I was was arrested and um, it was not very good. And wow. I thought my life was over. Like that's it. Like I thought that like my life's over. I'm now I'm kicked out of school. I was like trying to just get through school and, and move on to college. And it just shattered me. About a week later, I found myself no longer residing in my parents' home. I began to rent an apartment. I was working, you know, just a minimum wage job that I was fired from. I was evicted from my apartment. And that's it. My life was crashing down. So I decided, you know what? Nothing's working out for me here in this town. Um, you know, small town in Pennsylvania. Let me just get in my car and I'll just start driving. And I don't really know where I'm going to go in life, but I know there's more to life than, than what's happening to me here. So if I can just get out there, if I can just travel, I can just find more about the world. I might find out more about myself. Good for you for picking yourself up and going. You know, a lot of boys that age don't do that. They just kind of stay where they are and stay depressed. Right. And it was a really crazy thing. Like it was very radical. I just started driving. I see a sign for New York City. Why not? Sounds exciting. And I'm in New York City, you know, a teenager from a small town, extremely exciting. Never saw such a place like this in my life. And I'm just partying, having a good time, meeting people, blowing through what little savings I had many nights sleeping in my car. And one particular night, I go to sleep in my car and my car is gone. So it turns out it was impounded uh, because it was parked illegally and I had, didn't have money to get it out from the impound. So if I, if I wasn't like officially homeless until that point, now I was you know, definitely homeless. I start sleeping on park benches and this is in the winter. This is like a cold you know, New York winter, February of 09. And I'm getting sick from sleeping in the cold. So I, I start sleeping in the subway. Some of the newer trains are heated. And I'm just, you know, riding the subway train back and forth, you know, to the end of the line. I was homeless, but I didn't necessarily, I guess, look 
homeless. You know, I mean, I had long hair and I had torn jeans, but it was like my style. I had someone else who also had ripped jeans and long hair, but sadly looking a little less functional than me. Right. You, you were rocking the look. <laughs> exactly. 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 I was a punk. <laughs> So now I'm like, okay, I have to find warmth and safety when, when, I'm, when I'm looking for somewhere to sleep. So I notice the next day I see Starbucks open 24 hours a day. Okay, that's warm and safe. I'll just put my head down on the table and I'll sleep. The worst thing is they'll kick me out. So I returned to that particular Starbucks that I had seen among the dozens and dozens of Starbucks throughout Manhattan. And I fall asleep for a few hours that night and I wake up around midnight and there's a teenage boy and girl at the table next to me, a couple of years younger than me. They're maybe 15, 16 years old. And this boy has a yarmulke. He has a kippah on his head. So I'm thinking he's a Jew. My mom's a Jew. Start a conversation. And I thought, you know, what can I get from him? Uh, coffee, uh, a few bucks, a bed to sleep in, you know, something. So I said, hey, you Jewish? And he grabs his, uh, his kippah and he says, yeah, obviously. And a nice warm, you know, New York welcome. Yeah. Said, oh, uh, <laughs> I say, oh, cool, cool. My, uh, my mother, my mother's a Jew. So he looks at me kind of funny and he says, so you're also Jewish. I said, me? No, you know, I'm Catholic. I was baptized and I went to Catholic school and church. And I don't really know about God. I don't really believe in God, but I'm Catholic. I'm not Jewish. And he says to me, no, 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 no. Your, your mother's Jewish. You're a Jew. That's it. So that sounds kind of fascinating. We end up talking all throughout the night. It was daylight. With, with his girl Talk sitting next to him? With this girl. She's not the same <laughs> So I'm talking to this boy. It turns out it's Mendy. He must have been a Chabad boy if his name is Mendy. a Chabad Mendy. boy. How, how did I discover? I didn't know right away because I don't know what Chabad is. But here, when I figured out that this boy's from a Chabad family, it was, it was mind-blowing and fascinating how this conversation went. Basically, the whole time, he's telling me about Judaism and he's telling me about his teachings of, of Hasidus and he starts asking me if I've heard of this, this person, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. This, this is Mendy who is also like at a crossroads in life like me. He grew up in a Chabad family and he'd, he'd been kicked out of various yeshivas and he was having a hard time in life. And he still had to keep on for whatever reason he was wearing it that night. He tells me at some point, if you're not sure what to do in life, you should go to this place 770. And in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, he's got to tell me about like a homeless shelter. And like, I don't want to go to a homeless shelter, you know, like I'm not, I'm not really homeless. I'm just, I'm stuck. I just have to get out of this rut. And so I'm like, what is that? Like, what's, what is this 770 place? So he tells me it's, it's a big synagogue. And I'm thinking it sounds wild, but you know, I've never really been to a synagogue before. It might be interesting to check out. And when he had told me about the Rebbe and he showed me a picture of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, it was a very, very powerful experience for me. I had never seen the Rebbe. I have no idea. If you were to show me a picture of someone with a, with a beard and a black hat, I would have no idea that that's like a Jewish person. But when he showed me this picture of the Rebbe, which was a picture where the Rebbe smiled for the camera, but it was more than just that. It was almost like you feel like a penetrating gaze. It was like a special moment. I felt that this person, this picture was really looking at me. And even having grown up in a religious home as a Catholic, that wouldn't be like a typical experience I would have heard someone talk about that they felt like, you know, someone was looking at them from a picture. And it took a long time till I shared this with anyone. It was, it was a very personal thing. And I didn't tell anyone about it for a long time. But it was a very, very powerful experience to feel that this person who clearly was a very holy, a very special figure, to really feel like just from a picture, this person was kind of gazing at me. But that made me really want to take what Mendy was telling me seriously. So he tells me, you know, go to the synagogue. I'm like, okay, sounds wild, but why not? Let's go see. He told me, you know, if nothing else, it's open 24-7 and sometimes people sleep on the benches there. So I'm like, okay, anyone that's listening that knows anything about 770, then uh, you, you would appreciate it. You know, I, he tells me which train, which stop, the famed Kingston Avenue, uh, you know, Eastern Parkway in Crown Heights. And he tells me, you're going to see a, a bunch of guys with beards and black hats going in and out of the building. So it was, I saw, I saw that place. I went in and I'm standing in the lobby entrance of 770. And I don't really know what, what I'm supposed to do there. And I'm clearly out of place, which would be normal for 770. You imagine Chabad headquarters, there's lots of people from all walks of life there. And I'm accosted by some Hebrew speaking person pretty quickly. And he seems very excited. And he's telling me something in Hebrew, which of course I don't know. And I said, hey man, do you, do you speak English? Like, I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Hat, hat, cover your head. And it didn't even really click what he was trying to say to me. And he takes me into the shul, puts like this little, uh, this little keep on my head. And now he begins to say more Hebrew words to me. And he's like saying this funny word and he keeps wrapping his hand around his arm and pointing to his forehead. And I'm like looking at him doing some weird sign language. And I'm dude, I told you I only speak English. So he keeps repeating this word and he's telling me tefillin, tefillin. I don't know what it means. And he says to me, are you, are you Jewish? So I said, well, I met this guy in Starbucks last night. He told me that I'm Jewish. I should come to this, this synagogue. And he says, what? Is your mother Jewish? So I said, yeah, my mother's Jewish. Is your grandmother Jewish? My grandmother, big time Jew. No question. <laughs> 
she was you know, not necessarily observant or froom in any way, but she was involved with the Federation. She lived in an apartment building. You know, all Jews lived there. And she had been involved in organizing the different programs for holidays or for Shabbos. So this guy, now I'm putting on this like weird straps on my arm. And I was very excited about this place. You know, you could really feel the energy. And I mean, we'll be honest, again, anyone who knows 770, it's not the most beautiful place. It's kind of run down even. It's kind of falling apart. And and I go to a Catholic church, which even though it's kind of like gloomy, it's beautiful. It's designed so nicely. Paintings and everything is gorgeous. Gorgeous stained glass. But there was just something so vibrant and pulsating. The place was alive. You could really feel it. When he begins to say the bracha for me to repeat after him, for putting on tefillin, I recognize the words because these were the same words of this Hebrew song that, that I sang every year growing up. There's a mitzvah I did my whole life. It was lighting the menorah on Hanukkah. And this was the same Hebrew words of the song that we would sing when we were lighting the candles. I said the Shema for the first time in my life. And as I'm saying the Shema, he actually gave me an English sitter. And I was reading through Shema in English, the entire Shema, all the way through until Emes, until the word truth. Even though it was like foreign, and I'm like, okay, it's probably something from the Bible, but something just felt so natural about it. And I began to feel almost like a feeling of coming home after a long time of, of being away. At the end of saying Shema, I kind of had a certain flash of my life where I saw from the time I was a child and I saw especially the last few months of my life, which had for me were the worst. It was like my life falling apart and getting worse and worse, getting kicked out of school and my house and my apartment and my job and I'm homeless in New York. At the last moment of like despair, I'm in this Starbucks and this kid Mendy with his girlfriend are like hanging out there. This is not like, a, these are not just things that just happen. This is not happenstance. This is all for a purpose. And divine providence, Ashkocha Pratis, is something I learned about growing up, having grown up in a Catholic home. And I always just kind of wrote it off like, eh, whatever, you know, it just sounds nice. It sounds good. And there were many things that I felt the Catholic Church tried to imbue in the masses to assert a certain mind control. And I don't have very good feelings about, about the Catholic Church when I was growing up. And at that moment, I was like, wow, it's actually a real thing. Everything happens for a purpose and everything is like being guided along a certain path, regardless of the different decisions we make. It's all just another way to get to, to this end point. And I realized that if that's true, then like God exists, whoever he, whatever he is. But the main thing that I recognized in that moment was I'm a Jew, whatever that means. And I want to do what a Jew is supposed to do. So this, wow. this guy that put on tefillin with me, he says to me, do you want to go to yeshiva? Just like that. Half a block from 770 is an amazing place called Hadar Hatara. It's actually the first yeshiva in the world solely for Bali Chuva, founded during the hippie era. I walk in. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know anything about Judaism, let alone a yeshiva. I see a big sign that says rabbinical seminary. The word seminary scares me because Catholic seminaries where priests go, where they, you know, and it's like, oh, they don't get married. I don't know. It's, uh, what? <laughs> let's, let's at least investigate a little. So I sit down in this, you know, beginner level uh, Talmud class and the rabbi comes in and he's like, oh, I see we have a new face. What's your name? So I said, oh, hi, nice to meet you, rabbi. I'm Matt. And he says, no, you're, you're here. What's your Hebrew name? Your Jewish name. So I said, I, I don't know. My full name is Matthew. Matthew comes from Hebrew. It's a Hebrew name, you know, it means gift of God. I was like excited to share that. Even though, you know, Matthew isn't typically, a, not a typical Jewish name, especially having grown up in a Catholic family. My middle name is Christopher. I, I, I assumed for a long time, my father picked my name, Matthew Christopher. So I said, oh yeah, Matthew comes, you know, comes from Hebrew. So he's like, okay, how's your, uh, how's your Hebrew? I don't know Hebrew. So it gives me English translation. And I can't say I understood exactly what they were discussing in the Gemara, but there was a certain intrigue from this kind of back and forth of this, this rabbi says this and the other school says that. And uh, this kind of back and forth, bringing, trying to bring uh, proofs from verses and, you know, that kind of um, logic was something I'd never, I'd never seen before. And it was, it was exciting. I left the yeshiva after a couple hours. Um, I'm just excited to know that I'm a Jew. I'm going to do whatever things I know about Judaism. I'm going to keep my head covered. I'm not going to eat pork anymore. I'm excited to have finally defined myself. That night, I was like, okay, I'll go back to that synagogue. I'll sleep in that synagogue tonight. You know, that seemed like maybe a safe place to sleep for the night. But my Metro card was out of, uh, out of funds. I literally have nothing of value anymore. I have a backpack with a change of clothes, like a magazine or something. Like that was it. I can't even like travel around the city. I told myself, find a place to sleep for the night. Tomorrow, deal with tomorrow. So I walk into a Starbucks, a different one. There's a few of them in Manhattan. And at that exact moment, in through the door, walks uh, a young man in his early 20s. And he has a black hat. He has a short beard. And he comes in with a young lady who is wearing a long dress. Obvious that they're, that they're Jews. I would not have known that this was Jewish people 24 hours earlier. I would have, right. I would have no idea. 
But I'm like, ah, Jewish people, this is a family, right? So I really want to talk to them. They sit at the table right next to me. I take off my cap. I had a, a Phillies cap on. And I wanted them to see. I was still wearing this, uh, you know, this kippah that I was given in 770. Oh. I wanted them to see, you know, I'm a Jew. And they weren't taking the bait. You know, I look over at some point and I'm like, shalom. You know, like I, there's this word that Jewish people say to each other. <laughs> and he looks back at me. He says, Alecham shalom, v'smachsta. And he's like, how are you? So I start uh, motioning my, my hand around my arm. And I'm like, I did this thing for the first time today. You know this thing you put on your arm? He's like, oh, wow, mazel tov in your bar mitzvah. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I don't really register what he means. And he says to me, where are you, where are you spending the night? That was his one question. So I pointed to the table and I said, I'm already I'm checked in for tonight. And he says, no, 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 ridiculous. You need to be taken care of. Come, you spend the night in my dorm. So this young man, turns out, is a rabbinic student. In, in 770, and he was on a shidduch date with this, this young lady. So it was another date, a little different from the night before. Yeah. <laughs> um, a little different. In Starbucks. And, uh, and then we, we went back to Crown Heights, and, and this, we dropped off this young lady <laughs> at her home. It's kind of funny looking back at it. And, uh, and then I went with, with my new friend to his dorm, and I spent the night there. And I basically just became a part of the yeshiva. Like I just embedded myself into the furniture, so to speak. The yeshiva was very full at the time. So I just kind of started sleeping in the dormitory and I started going to the meals. I started going to the, all the shiurim, the classes and the davening. My mother had been calling me every day since I had first come to the yeshiva, which was on a, which was on a Sunday. And it's now Friday afternoon and it's getting close to Shabbos. And I don't know what Shabbos is really. Aside from like, you know, one of the students in yeshiva told me about this poetic day of rest and disconnecting from the world. And it sounded, sounded nice, but I didn't really know what Shabbos was. My mother was calling First of all, my cell phone had been disconnected. So I realized she paid my bill to get in touch with me. Oh, I'm ignoring her phone call every day. And finally, I'm like, you know what? She's worried about me. Let me answer. I'll tell her I'm okay. So she doesn't worry. It's almost Shabbos. She doesn't know what that is. So I'm like, hey, what's up, mom? She's like, Matthew Devlin, where are you? Please just come home. We're so worried. We're so worried. Just forget about everything. Come home. I said, no, mom, don't worry about me. Don't worry about me. Everything's fine. I'm in yeshiva. So I say to my mother, do, do you know what yeshiva is? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I'm Jewish. I know what yeshiva is. Like, what, what kind of yeshiva? And I tell her it's with Chabad. Do you know what Chabad is? And she's like, yeah, I'm Jewish. I know what Chabad is. And then without missing a beat, she says to me, wait a second, it's Shabbos. You can't be on your phone. We, we, we're on the, this was like a 60 second conversation. So I call my mother back, you know, Saturday night or Sunday maybe. And my mother grew up in what she calls like a, a traditional family. She grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia in the 50s and 60s, where she said a lot of Jews were still a little more traditional. You know, they went to public school and they were very involved in secular life and modern life, but they kept a kosher home and they kept Shabbos or, you know, to some extent they had, you know, some extent of Shabbos in their home. And just over time as she was growing up and, and my grandparents their marriage began to have issues. A lot of things fell by the wayside and, and they stopped keeping a kosher kitchen. They stopped keeping uh, Shabbos. And by the time my mother was 10, 11 years old, things had fallen by the wayside. They always celebrated Hanukkah. My mother always kept that because even through whatever happened at home, they always celebrated Hanukkah. Like that was something her parents always took out the minar. They always lit the candles. That's so interesting because I feel like what you normally hear is people who are not very observant or who are traditional. Normally it's like Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. It's like the once a year right. Hanukkah in particular. I feel like I haven't heard that very often that Hanukkah is the holiday that people remember celebrating. And what's interesting is that that's the one that you celebrated growing up. And your name is Matasiahu. It might be the power of lights. 100%. It's really a big thing in my life. Something that I imbue in my children, the, the idea of, of overcoming darkness and the idea of being a lamplighter and spreading that light to others. Yeah, my which son. is what Matis Yahoo did. Exactly. And I was just talking with my son over Shabbos about, you know, a candle, no matter how many times the candle lights another candle, that flame never gets smaller, right? There's no, like, there's no diminishing. This is something that's so powerful that no matter how much you give it away, yours always stays lit. It always stays aflame and the others as hey. well. I went from being a very selfish person who was just getting what I could out of others and not a mention any definition of the word, even minimally, to really being someone who really uh, acts, uh, you know, behaves and acts mentally towards other people and, and really sees, you know, the value in other people, the value in the moment, how you can affect others. And just my life changed totally and very quickly. And I found out that, you know, Matthew in English, it comes from the Nimatesio. For me, that was really special because since Hanukkah, like we said, was, that was the one connection I had to Judaism. And, you know, this whole idea of light and it was just, it was very, I had just come out of such an intense darkness in my life that right. it really was 
something amazing to me. And even the meaning of Matasyal, gift of God, I had felt for a long time that I was just worthless and my life was meaningless. I had no purpose. And if I wasn't here, like nothing's going to change in the world. And this like coming out of that into such a bright moment, it was, it spoke to me. Later, I found out a couple years later, I was going through like a, a memory box that all of my siblings, we have at home, a memory box. And I was looking at my, you know, the baby, baby calendar, you know, it was like first year calendars. And I never noticed, I look at this thing a million times in my life, you know, when I got my first tooth and rolled over the first time or whatever, I never noticed in the back, it's his letter from mommy and letter from daddy. I never saw it in my life. I read this letter from my mother and she writes in this letter, I'm giving you the name Matthew, which is a Jewish name that means gift, gift from God, because I want you to always know that you are, that you have a Jewish heritage. And I was like, wow. I was like, oh my gosh. Like, okay. So that maybe never actually translated practically into something, but this was actually something my mother had the intent for when I was born. She had a lot of chances of children being one of 11. She had a lot of chances of children to like be someone that maybe in some way begins to live a life with Judaism. And like, I was the one that that happened with. What number child are you in the family? I'm the sixth. I'm the sixth child. I'm the middle one, which might explain a little bit, (laughs) (laughs) you know. I ended up spending four or five months learning in yeshiva. For me, it was a very powerful time for me, very meaningful. It straightened out a lot of things in my life. One of the really big things being my relationship with my family. My mother and I did not have anything that would even resemble a relationship, probably since I was like 11, 12 years old. From the time I learned that I could talk back to my mother, and I mean, not that I could, but that I started doing it, you know. From the time that I really didn't want to be told what to do, my mother and I did not get along whatsoever. And it really changed. Like my mother and I became so close. And, and to this day, I, I speak to my mother almost every day, whether it's a text or a call. My mother and I are very, very close. That's so um, special. Yes. And I want to actually, while I'm speaking to my mother, I want to wish her a refuel shalema. Also my father, they both just tested positive for coronavirus. So I want to wish both oh, of them. Sorry wow. to hear that. So refuel shalema. Thank you. Have a speedy recovery. And also my, uh, my father, Joseph Michael Ben Joseph John. By the way, my name is Sarah Rivka. I share the same name as really? my mother. Yes. That's my daughter's, that's <laughs> my daughter's name also. I, my daughter, we named after her. Wow. Beautiful name. Yeah. Nice. So, so your, your Yiddish guide brought you and your mother back together. Yes. Like unbelievably, like we became so close. I never, even with my father, who was the one I was closer with as a teenager, never enjoyed such a personal relationship that, that, that I had at the time with my mother and that I still continue to have. Um, my, I started speaking to my siblings again. Um, you know, I started, my, my father and I was a little rocky because, you know, it wasn't like his favorite thing that I was doing. He later said, this was like maybe a year and a half or so after this, uh, I was featured on National Geographic. Uh, it, yes, I saw that. I saw that. We, I we saw it. About it. Yeah. So yeah, so only for God inside Hasidism. You can find it on YouTube. And we'll share a link in the podcast notes as well. Over there, you'll see one thing my father says. This is about a year and a half after all this. And they ask him, you know, how did you feel about your son going to yeshiva? And he says, and you can see it's, it's a little bit painful. You can even see in his eyes and in his voice. He says, you know, I think at a time in my son's life when he was very vulnerable, a God-fearing people took him in and he kind of trails off and he's not really sure where he's going with it. He's trying to be positive. And then he says, you know, in, in, in Catholic, you know, theology, you know, baptism leaves you know, an indelible mark on the soul. You know, he's trying to find from his perspective where even though now I'm practicing Judaism, but I'm still, I'm still, I'm still saved because I was baptized. You know, it was a very difficult time. It, it, it was, it was, um, it was a real mix of emotions for him because on just a human level, he saw that it was very good for me. And he did respect that Hasidic Jews, religious Jews were God-fearing people, but, you know, he, he's trying to raise his son as a Catholic. And that was, you know, what he, what he would have expected especially as I think really even throughout my life, as it, even throughout my teenage years, when I was not really believing in Catholicism and I was rebelling, I was still like kind of the more religious one out of my family and out of my friends. Like I was still super involved in the church and everyone knew that. And I was even proud of that, like of being part of my church community, even if I didn't really believe or buy into the dogma. So at a certain point, yeshiva becomes a little too much for me. And yeah. that, excitement, that excitement wore off. I still felt that this was the way to live. I felt that this was the truth. I felt Teda is Teda's true. Hashem is real. And I really, really believed it. But I just felt like I'm 18 years old. They, they didn't have that, that term FOMO. My friends are all going away to college soon and they're going to get the party and do whatever you do. And I'm like, I sh- I'm going to miss out on that. I don't want to miss out on that stuff. 
So my parents uh, let me move back home. You know, I had to agree I'd finish high school and go to college and have a job, you know, no, normal stuff. I moved home. I, my parents didn't know I was planning to drop uh, Jewish observance. My father didn't really say anything about it. My mother was not, was not very thrilled. I remember she says to me, she had never called me Matasiel yet. She was still calling me Matt. Now my mother calls me Matasiel. She says to me, Matasiel, you're not a Jew anymore? And I was like, ow. And in my mind, I'm like, I want to say to her, mom, when's the last time you lit Shabbos candles, huh? But like, I didn't, I know. I was like, I learned a little bit of, uh, of Kibbutz Avaim, you know, bit my tongue. I went back to living the way I lived before. I was hanging out with that wrong crowd again. I started, you know, started using drugs and drinking a lot. I was partying a lot. I decided I have no intention of doing what my parents want me to do. I threw a party at my house when my family was away on vacation. And my parents have a pretty good venue for hosting uh, a soiree of sorts. <laughs> and they, they were not very thrilled. And I found myself not living in my parents' house again. I began a period of what I call couch surfing. Just kind of this night on this friend's couch, this another few days in a friend's guest house, a friend's guest room, a basement, you know, bouncing around. I don't recall a lot of that uh, time period. I was just not in a good place. I was using a lot. I had my birthday. I turned 19, the end of July. And early August, soon after my birthday, I got into an accident skateboarding. I was longboarding downhill. And I was going about 35 miles per hour. And my friend was following me in a car. And I fell. I hit my head on the pavement. And I fractured my skull. So I was, I was, I was bleeding profusely. I guess before I ended up being sedated and then eventually put into a medically induced coma, they called my father and they tell him he should come in. They should bring his family to the hospital, you know, that, that I had an accident and it doesn't look very good. And my father wanted to have a priest come in to do um, the, uh, the last rites uh, that they do that in, in Catholicism when a person is uh, close to passing away. Oh my and gosh, my wow. mother, yeah, it was, it was pretty serious. And my mother said that, you know, He's a Jew and we're not going to give up. And she, um, she called the, uh, the yeshiva that I've been going to. Sometimes it's very hard to talk about it. <laughs> um, she called the yeshiva I've been going to. And she, she remembered that, you know, we say Tehillim. That's what Jews do for each other. And uh, she asked if they would say Tehillim for me. I, I, I clearly lived. <laughs> and wow. uh, I was put into a medically induced Thank coma. Um, that doctors thought it might prolong my life to an extent, but they were not so hopeful. I defied uh, their expectations, uh, as I always defied uh, most people in life at that time, and I stayed alive. And again, another day, they were doing all kinds of MRIs or other brain scans, and there was my brain was swelling even more. And they were, you know, they were like, for sure, for sure, you know, probably not another twenty-four hours. And you know, I, I kept going, I kept living, you know, when they said I wasn't going to. After two or three days of this, they said that the swelling had almost completely subsided, which was like beyond belief. They brought me out of the uh, the medically induced coma. Um, it worked on the, the the second the second attempt. I was stable enough to do it. And they said, and that was after they thought I would be in a coma for a long time. Then they said that okay, I, I could be conscious, um, but I would have to relearn how to walk. My speech would be slurred. I'd have to do extensive therapy to rewire certain uh, pro thought processes. I was walking. With help, but it was still beyond their wildest expectations that I would be able to like walk, you know, that day. And I was talking and I, after, you know, I was released from the hospital after uh, six days and I was sent to a, a rehabilitation center where even though I was walking, even though I was talking, they still thought I would be there for, for a while. I spent one week there until I was <laughs> released. And it was just totally opposite of what the doctors were saying. And obviously, my parents let me move back home again <laughs> after such an experience. I was officially on bed rest during that time. That's what parents do. Right. That's, that's right. You know, I get to understand that now as a parent. Not teenagers yet, but uh, I, get to, I get to understand what, you know, what we do for our children. And that after that month, I had a lot to think about during that time. I have a very clear memory, which is waking up in the room. And I had felt like I was with my friend like a moment before. And then all of a sudden, I'm in a different surrounding. Like to me, there was just like, there was no gap. It was like, I'm with my friend. I vaguely remember maybe skateboarding. And then all of a sudden, I'm in a different place. But I'm looking around and I'm like, okay, I'm in a hospital. You know, I have all these machines attached to me and phone. And then I noticed my wallet was sitting out. I pick it up and I open my wallet. And I had in, in the, the photo ID slot, I had a picture of the Rebbe. And this was a picture that actually Mendy, you know, 15-year-old Mendy with his girlfriend Starbucks, he had in his wallet when I met him, 
when I saw that picture of the Rebbe, I heard in a way the Rebbe say to me, Matasio, you thought that you would leave my sphere of influence and do what you want. And okay, you know, you went on your merry way and you did what, what you pleased. But I don't leave the space of where the Jewish people are. And having had that moment, that, ex- that experience, it really changed my entire mindset. I need to really take a good look at my life. What am I doing in this world? I'm here with my part of the world that I was entrusted to. And what am I doing with it? Like I'm bringing others down. I'm, you know, my younger siblings, my friends, my community. I got to turn that around. And I couldn't help but think so much about what all these people have done for me. All these people I met, Mendy in Starbucks and the person that put on the film with me and this young man and young lady on a Shidduch date, how, you know, they gave me a meal and a place to sleep. And all these little things that people have been recognizing. Oh, here's a person that came into my life. What can I do for them? Maybe it's not big. Maybe it's not major for me, but you know, I have something I could offer that person. And those little acts of kindness were very powerful for you. Extremely powerful, you know, and, and when you have, when you realize that so many people are doing these little things for you, it's something that's clearly from me, you know, you can see it, it's completely life-changing. So I started thinking about that a lot and I started becoming from again. I started taking on one thing at a time and I finished high school, actually from which I graduated the valedictorian of my class. And so I really oh, turned everything nice. around. Right. I made my parents very proud. <laughs> I turned around how, how I, you know, could have been in high school, but, but thank God I wasn't like that in high school originally because, you know, much good came out of, of not being that way at first. Right. I was going to go, go to university. I'd gotten a job. I had living arrangements. And I just ended up deciding ultimately I want to go back to yeshiva. Uh, towards the end of my learning experience, I was learning in 770. And at that time, I was introduced to uh, a young, wonderful young lady who is now my wife of seven years. Beautiful. And, um, and, you know, as we mentioned earlier, we, you know, we have three children. Previously, we were shluchim on campus in California, which was an incredible experience for a few years. And really getting to just like, you know, we mentioned before about Matasio and Hanukkah, the idea of light and, 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 and having light in darkness and spreading light. And it just, it's a lot of what goes on on college campuses. And the fact that my wife and I had that privilege and my son also, who remembers a little bit of it, to really be able to pass on, to hand that over to, to, to young college students, many of whom then, you know, I saw them tangibly turn it, pass it over to others, you know, students who had not been really involved in Judaism, who took leadership roles, whether in Chabad or in Hillel or in, you know, the Jewish fraternities and ended up really taking a role of leadership and them going on to affect other people. Now my wife and I, we live in South Florida, in Miami where I, I teach actually a real spread of ages. I teach first grade in the morning. I teach seventh grade in the afternoon. I teach in the high school, Masifta, Yeshiva Katana in the evening. It's really something I really enjoy doing. It's different from the, you know, running a Chabad house. But for me, it's really the same because it's really that idea that I get to pass on a light that I feel I have. And if I can pass that on in any way, shape or form to other people, keep that spark going in them, or even kindle in them something they might not be getting from home in a way that they want to pass it over to others, that they want to be excited, that they live it. Really beautiful. And your wife? My, my wife has uh, her undergrads in psychology, and she has a, she has a master's degree in uh, behavioral therapy. Uh, I'm here on Zoom, actually, for those listening, and there's cred- nice credentials behind me, and they're not mine. They're I was wondering what they were. <laughs> and she is now she is a board-certified uh, behavioral analyst. Oh, fantastic. Um, with, uh, That's amazing. Yeah, she works with children with autism and other children with uh, behavioral issues. Wow, that your story is so unique and you're clearly inspiring all those around you. And we know that all our listeners are going to be inspired as well. At the same time, there are many influences today pulling us away from traditional values. And we wanted to know from you, what advice would you give to someone who is searching for meaning and purpose that might feel disconnected from their source? Sure. It's definitely a very real issue. A lot of people feel disconnected for... Um, and even the people that you don't expect, they might also be feeling disconnected. And I think knowing that we're not alone is also a, a big help. We have to really look at what those disconnections are and try to build up the places where we are connected. I know I can speak from my personal experience, you know, being brought up in Catholicism. I ended up throwing out everything in life. I ended up letting not only disconnecting from, from that religion and that faith that I had, but I began to disconnect from my community. I began to disconnect from my, my parents, from my siblings, from my friends, from all those things that are, that are so important in life. And unfortunately, that put me down a really bad path. Now, yeah. in the end, it did work out, it did work out for the better. Um, it was an unfortunate series of events that, that led to very good things in my life. But 
that all too often is not the case that ends up happening. And even if we can come out better in the end of the struggle, you know, there's no reason to intentionally put ourselves in it to hope something good will come one day. I think that if someone is having a struggle with spiritual things, with faith, with belief in Hashem, with mitzvahs, with whatever it is you're struggling with, whatever frame of reference you have with your upbringing, with what you're learning in school or what your parents want you to do or what's expected, I think we have to make sure to never sever the ties of things of those connections that don't need to be severed. It all too often can look like, well, it's my parents' fault that I have this. It's my Rebbe's fault. It's my teacher's fault. It's the school's fault. They're the ones that make me feel and believe this way. And, and so like, forget about them. I have to cut them out. In order to fix my life, I have to cut them out of it because they're the root cause of it. At the end of the day, our parents are always here to support us and our teachers and our friends are always here for us. And sometimes it's not easy to see that. It can be really hard. I can tell you looking back, it was a long time until I realized that everything my parents were doing for me was for the good. And it's very easy to say that now as an adult grown up to look back and see that hindsight 2020. But I think people have to remember, what are we actually disconnected from and what should we not be disconnected from? Build up those connections. And I think by working on those relationships, keeping those connections open, the other disconnections, yeah, they'll be disconnected. Let's be honest. We might always feel a disconnect in some of those regards. But if we did, if we keep those bonds strong, if we build them up in whatever way we can, it helps us to go on in life and be successful. Saying don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. No, like right. you don't have to get rid of everything if you don't feel connected. There are parts of you that you can tap into. So it's interesting. And I saw it so often with my students. If, the, if they're struggling in one thing, whether it's something academic or something behavioral or something more, you know, spiritual, I tried to see what are they struggling with and where do they yes connect? And I really tried to build up those things that they do connect with. I tried to build it up and boost it. And through that, it helps the other things. I was going to ask about, you know, any lessons you have for teachers, but there we go. That is yeah, the Yeah, there's a lesson. lesson. What you focus on, you get more of. Right. Absolutely. And, and that's really like my real driving force as an educator. I mean, of course, I love the academic side of being a teacher. I'm, I'm very academic. I love learning. And anyone that knows me knows like I have a real passion for learning and for giving over information and giving over, you know, academia uh, as like an academic subject. I love that. But in today's day and age, teachers have taken on a role that we are not just imbuing information. There was a time when that's what teaching was. In today's day and age where school is something where kids are with you for six hours a day, eight hours a day, 12 hours a day, right? When depending on the age, you know, in our, you know, yeshiva and, you know, Jewish school systems, kids are with you for so many hours. You really, in many ways, replace the parents like more than ever before. In, in legal dictum, you have in locus parentis, right? That teachers are in the place of the parents. Any legal obligations that parents have for the kids, teachers have that obligation. And that's been in American law for a while. But it really comes down to something even deeper than that. It's not just that you have it. The onus is on you to make sure the kids are clothed and fed and whatever when they're with you. But it's their emotional needs, their, their social needs, their behavior, their, their inspiration, their everyday life, how they're living. That's something that we have to do as educators because uh, that's what I'm all about. Great advice. Yeah. Positive advice. As we all just heard, the way you grew up is vastly different to how you live your life today. Does your upbringing affect your identity as a religious Jew? And do you ever question your choice? Sure. So I'll have to say nothing really from my upbringing in Catholicism really affects anything today with me. There was a, a time in my life where I totally shed everything that, that I was living with as a devout Catholic. One thing that is very nice is because of certain carryover in certain theological concepts, like, first of all, the idea of divine providence, which we spoke so much about, and other concepts as well, it gives my father and I a lot to talk about, and it really was something that repaired our relationship. For a while, we didn't talk too much, but over time, we began to talk more, and we started having these conversations once in a while about things that we agree on. Instead of looking at what we don't agree about theologically or philosophically, we would talk about ideas that both of us can agree with. It really repaired the relationship that I did have with my father as a teenager, even. And I'm very happy of that. I'm, I'm very proud of that because now I have two parents that I'm very close to. And my father and I maybe don't talk as often as I wish we did. But, you know, once a month or so when, when you know, my father's calling or, or I'm calling my father, you know, my, my wife knows that she's putting the kids to bed on her own tonight. It's going to be, right. a, we enjoy a very lengthy hour, so two hour conversation where we talk about religion and politics and philosophy and life and, and just everything. That's amazing. Um, so maybe not not the exact answer you, the question might have been for, but that, that is yeah. very, no. But look, um, the similarity that you found 
has brought you and your father together. And, you know, it's interesting because that there's a parallel in education also where you find, you know, where you're even where as a teacher, where you're similar with the student and find right. that connection there where, and you can draw on that connection. I, like Absolutely. there's so many, I mean, so many lessons, you know, in faith, in practice. And, and in, for me, most importantly in education. And I learned your story from my son, who is one of your students who had and has been raving about you as a person, um, as a teacher, as a mentor. God willing, people will hear the story um, through our podcast, but I feel like this needs to be in a book. You know, do you have any plans, Absolutely. Of, of, do you? Any plans yeah. of writing a book in the future? So, you, you know, there's that cliche that people say, if, if I had a dollar for every time someone asked me a question, you know. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I go around telling my story um, all over. I do not so much now because of uh, coronavirus, but I've spoken at over 100 Chabad houses. I've spoken at a dozen schools throughout the country and many other occasions as well. And people always ask, did you write a book? My wife, every other day, <laughs> when are you writing a book? When are you writing? <laughs> my wife is my biggest She's right. She's right. <laughs> for seven years, for seven years, she's been uh, telling me about it. And I, I definitely, I sat down uh, to start it at a certain point. And I happen to be a writer. I happen to love writing. Even I don't, I haven't had the opportunity to do it so much in recent years, but I actually really enjoy writing. But I, I really do want to. Um, I'm, I guess I need a certain moment that's really going to get me to do it. I thought coronavirus with more time at home would get me to do it. And, you know, that that's one thing that I do want to work on. I really do want to get something out there. There's a lot more details that, that I've never shared really in public that I think could be meaningful. There's a lot of, you know, kind of side lessons and side stories and other yeah. experiences I've been through growing up or since, since, you know, since I've been married or in more recent times, experiences with my students, a lot of things that I would like to write down that I feel could be great for people to read and be inspired from. So we, we look yes. forward to hopefully one day seeing sure. your story. Maybe, in a maybe, book. maybe this discussion will be the uh, catalyst. Yeah. yeah. Yes. In addition to all the things that Ida was sharing that we are so inspired by, I find the little acts that people did and what a difference they made in their life. And I think that's something we can all learn from, just little interactions that we have with people. You never know what they're going to do for somebody. And then look how you've gone on. It didn't only change your life, but you're, you've gone on to change all these students' lives that you're inspiring. So I think there's that. And also what really got me was when you got emotional about your mother and how she totally changed her tune with how she brought you up. She somehow really tuned into her soul once she saw that you became religious, but even though you went and gave it all away when you came back home, she still tapped into that when you were on your sure. deathbed, so to speak. And she wanted to call the um, yeshiva that you went to to say to Hillim, I found that very soul inspiring. Absolutely. The amazing thing is, is that anyone could change an entire person's life. And we never know when we're doing that. There's something you could do for everyone that comes into your life. Something that all of us can do every day, whether it's with a stranger, like with me, it was with these people, but how much more so with our friends? How, about, how much more so with our, our colleagues, our coworkers, our family members, our parents, our kids, our siblings, just having a conversation with someone when it looks like they need a conversation, reaching out to that friend. It's like, Hey, you've been a little off. Like, is everything okay? And everything is totally okay. But when a friend hears that someone cares about them, all of these yeah. things, when you're doing it and another person is doing it for them and another person is doing it with them, no one's doing it to try and change your life. Just people doing good things for each other. And it changes an entire person's life, like me, for example. But it wasn't just me that this whole idea stopped with. And I went on to try to affect in some way every person I meet, what can I do for them? A few minute conversation, an hour conversation, a meal, a tefillin, a mezuzah. What can I do for another person at any moment? You know, if, uh, a little bit of tzedakah. What, what can I do for someone? You know, my grandmother at the end of her life, who was able to have the incredible nachas that she had, you know, in a very difficult ending of her life when she was unwell, she got to see her grandson you know, with that, with the hot jacket, which with, for her, that was something really special because she grew up with a Zayda at home that wore a hat and jacket. She grew up with a Zayda who wow. had a beard. You know, wow. she grew up in a, in a home where they lived next door to the Rav in South Philly, which was a very religious area in the 1920s. And she got to have her grandson, her ankle with a hat and jacket, you know, who she said, I'll bet you never leave home, leave home without them. And let me tell you, I don't always want to wear a hat and jacket. You know, it's, I live in Florida. It's really it's hot. hot. And it's really hot. And sometimes I'm like, you know, this is like, it's like the last thing maybe that's so important as a Jew. For me, it's like something my grandmother had such nachas from. And it was this thing she said to me, I bet you never leave home without a hat and jacket. So like I always wear, my son knows, Tati always wears his hat and jacket, you know? It's like a little thing, but oh. it becomes, for my kids, it becomes this like thing that's, wow, it's so important to like look like a Jew. You know, that's like an important thing for them. 
Do your okay. siblings embrace your Judaism and have they embraced theirs so at all? My, my, my siblings uh, are very supportive of me. But overall, like when push comes to shove, we're, we're there for each other. And we, we, we're, I, I feel very privileged to have that, uh, especially because our family is so large. And, you know, they're very supportive. And for them in their own lives, you know, as, uh, as what does it mean for them, their identity as a Jew, on a minimum level, like, you know, we all, we all lived in Menorah growing up. So that was a very normal thing for us. Many of them still live uh, in my hometown. So they will make an effort to go over one or two or three nights of Hanukkah to light the menorah with my, with my mother. An incredible thing that happened this past Hanukkah, and this is really like my son, and, and, and I can't be more proud of him. Such a young kid really living with, if there's one thing I teach him, it's we're responsible for every single Jew and we have to do everything we can for other Jews. And this was last year, shortly before his fifth birthday, a little bit before Hanukkah, he's four years old. And he comes to me randomly and he says to me, Hati, I'm responsible for my cousins. You know, they don't know so much about Judaism. They don't really know that they're Jewish. And he asked me, would it be all right if he, we would send all of his cousins a menorah for Hanukkah? And I was like, this is unbelievable. Unbelievable. It was a four-year-old little kid. Wow. So we packaged up, you know, these, uh, these boxes of menorahs that Chabad always gives out, the little aluminum menorah with the candles. And we, we gave everyone a dreidel and some Hanukkah gelt. And, uh, and we sent, you know, for each family, each one of my siblings, we sent them one of these little boxes. And sure enough, you know, I get pictures from all of them. You know, they show me a picture of uh, the Hanukkah, just like my upbringing, on the mantle. There's the Hanukkah menorah burning. There's the tree in the background, the stockings hanging on the fireplace. And for me, it was such an amazing moment to see those pictures. Like, wow, like, like okay, they're, they're celebrating Christmas and they're doing these other holidays and other things. But like, they're also celebrating Hanukkah. But it's even more because now they're growing up with cousins that are like Jewish, religious Jewish cousins. They have this uncle who's a rabbi. Now there's like this even greater chance to keep them connected to Judaism in some way um, as they Beautiful. grow up. All for my son, you know, all for my kids. We had no idea the impact that Hanukkah specifically had in your life, that your mother had given you that as a gift. And then you and your wife both became lamplighters and your children now following along in your path. So what a beautiful uh, time of year to put it out. And thank you for everything that you've done for the community, for the world. And really, you should continue to be a lamplighter. We have no doubt this conversation that we're having is going to bring a lot of light to many. Yep. I hope so. Appreciate that. Yeah.